Howard Phillips Lovecraft, born August 20, 1890, died March 15, 1937, at the age of 46. Virtually unknown and unable to support himself with his writings in life, he later took on a great significance, influencing pop culture itself through his cosmic horror and Cthulhu in particular. An awful lot can be said about this fascinating and complicated man. His political views evolved from a monarchist to a socialist and later a progressive. He was an atheist, instead holding a more cosmic-centric philosophy that would shape his later writings. A cultural and class elitist, calling him racist is actually a simplification. Not to say he wasn't, but it went much deeper. His legacy is both important and challenging. I try to keep these issues close to an hour and feature more fiction than talky-talky, so I encourage you to look him up yourself. There are several podcasts dedicated to exploring the man and his fiction. This first story was penned by a friend and collaborator of his, C.M. Eddie Jr. The two met via their progressive mothers who were both active in the women's suffrage movement and went on to do quite a few things together. While Lovecraft did have some input, this story is mostly Eddie's. The Ghost Eater by C.M. Eddie Jr. with H.P. Lovecraft 1. Moon madness? A touch of fever? I wish I could think so. But when I am alone after dark in the waste places where my wanderings take me, and hear across infinite voids the demon echoes of those screams and snarls, and that detestable crunching of bones, I shudder again at the memory of that eldritch night. I knew less of woodcraft in those days, though the wilderness called just as strongly to me as it does now. Up to that night, I had always been careful to employ a guide, but circumstances now suddenly forced me to a trial of my own skill. It was midsummer in Maine, and despite my great need to get from Mayfair to Glendale by the next noon, I could find no person willing to pilot me. Unless I took the long route through Potawisset, which would not bring me to my goal in time, there would be dense forests to penetrate. Yet whenever I asked for a guide, I was met with refusal and evasion. Stranger that I was, it seemed odd that everyone should have glib excuses. There was too much important business on hand for such a sleepy village, and I knew that the natives were lying. But they all had imperative duties, or said that they had, and would do no more than assure me that the trail through the woods was very plain, running due north, and not in the least difficult for a vigorous young fellow. If I started while morning was still early, they averred, I could get to Glendale by sundown and avoid a night in the open. Even then I suspected nothing. The prospect seemed good, and I resolved to try it alone. Let the lazy villagers hang back as they might. Probably I would have tried it even if I had suspected, for youth is stubborn, and from childhood I had only laughed at superstition and old wives' tales. So before the sun was high, I had started off through the trees at a swinging stride, lunch in my hand, guardian automatic in my pocket, and a belt filled with crisp bills of large denominations. From the distances given me and a knowledge of my own speed, I had figured on making Glendale a little after sunset, but I knew that even if detained overnight through some miscalculation, I had plenty of camping experience to fall back on. Besides, my presence at my destination was not really necessary till the following noon. It was the weather that set my plans awry. As the sun rose higher, it scorched through even the thickest of the foliage and burned up my energy at every step. 
By noon, my clothes were soaking with perspiration, and I felt myself faltering in spite of all my resolution. As I pushed deeper into the woods, I found the trail greatly obstructed with underbrush, and at many points nearly effaced. It must have been weeks, perhaps months, since anyone had broken his way through, and I began to wonder if I could, after all, live up to my schedule. At length, having grown very hungry, I looked for the deepest patch of shade I could find, and proceeded to eat the lunch which the hotel had prepared for me. There were some indifferent sandwiches, a piece of stale pie, and a bottle of very light wine. By no means sumptuous fare, but welcome enough to one in my state of overheated exhaustion. It was too hot for smoking to be of any solace, so I did not take out my pipe. Instead, I stretched myself at full length under the trees when my meal was done, intent on stealing a few moments' rest before commencing the last lap of my journey. I suppose I was a fool to drink that wine, for, light though it was, it proved just enough to finish the work the sultry, oppressive day had begun. My plan called for the merest momentary relaxation, yet with scarcely a warning yawn, I dropped off into a sound slumber. 2. When I opened my eyes, twilight was closing in about me. A wind fanned my cheeks, restoring me quickly to full perception, and as I glanced up at the sky, I saw with apprehension that black racing clouds were leading on a solid wall of darkness, prophetic of violent thunderstorm. I knew now that I could not reach Glendale before morning, but the prospect of a night in the woods, my first night of lone forest camping, became very repugnant under these trying conditions. In a moment, I decided to push along for a while at least, in the hope of finding some shelter before the tempest should break. Darkness spread over the woods like a heavy blanket. The lowering clouds grew more threatening, and the wind increased to a veritable gale. A flash of distant lightning illuminated the sky, followed by an ominous rumble that seemed to hint of malign pursuit. Then I felt a drop of rain on my outstretched hand, and though still walking on automatically, resigned myself to the inevitable. Another moment, and I had seen the light, the light of a window through the trees and the darkness. Eager only for shelter, I hastened toward it. Would to God I had turned and fled. There was a sort of imperfect clearing, on the farther side of which, with its back against the primeval wood, stood a building. I had expected a shanty or log cabin, but stopped short in surprise when I beheld a neat and tasteful little house of two stories, some seventy years old by its architecture, yet still in a state of repair betokening the closest and most civilized attention. Through the small panes of one of the lower windows, a bright light shone. And toward this, spurred by the impact of another raindrop, I presently hurried across the clearing, rapping loudly on the doors as soon as I gained the steps. With startling promptness, my knock was answered by a deep, pleasant voice, which uttered the single syllable, Come! Pushing open the unlocked door, I entered a shadowy hall, lighted by an open doorway at the right, beyond which was a book-lined room with the gleaming window. As I closed the outer door behind me, I could not help noticing a peculiar odor about the house, a faint, elusive, scarcely definable odor which somehow suggested animals. My host, I surmised, must be a hunter or trapper with his business conducted on the premises. The man who had spoken sat in a capacious easy chair beside a marble-topped center table, a long lounging robe of gray swathing his lean form. 
The light from a powerful argon lamp threw his features into prominence, and as he eyed me curiously, I studied him in no less detail. He was strikingly handsome, with thin, clean-shaven face, glossy flaxen hair neatly brushed, long, regular eyebrows that met in a slanting angle above the nose, shapely ears set low and well back on the head, and large, expressive gray eyes, almost luminous in their animation. When he smiled a welcome, he showed a magnificently even set of firm white teeth, and as he waved me to a chair, I was struck by the fineness of his slender hands, with their long, tapering fingers, whose ruddy, almond-shaped nails were slightly curved and exquisitely manicured. I could not help wondering why a man of such engaging personality should choose the life of a recluse. Sorry to intrude, I ventured but I've given up the hope of making Glendale before morning, and there's a storm coming on which sent me looking for cover. As if to corroborate my words, there came at this point a vivid flash, a crashing reverberation, and the first breaking of a torrential downpour that beat maniacally against the windows. My host seemed oblivious to the elements, and flashed to me another smile when he answered. His voice was soothing and well-modulated, and his eyes held a calmness almost hypnotic. You're welcome to whatever hospitality I can offer, but I'm afraid it won't be much. I've a game leg, so you'll have to do most of the waiting on yourself. If you're hungry, you'll find plenty in the kitchen, plenty of food if not of ceremony. It seemed to me that I could detect the slightest trace of a foreign accent in his tone, though his language was fluently correct and idiomatic. Rising to an impressive height, he headed for the door with long, limping steps, and I noticed the huge hairy arms that hung at his side in such curious contrast with his delicate hands. Come, he suggested. Bring the lamp along with you. I might as well sit in the kitchen as here. I followed him into the hall and the room across it, and at his direction ransacked the woodpile in the corner and the cupboard on the wall. A few moments later, when the fire was going nicely, I asked him if I might not prepare food for both, but he courteously declined. It's too hot to eat, he told me. Besides, I had a bite before you came. After washing the dishes left from my lone meal, I sat down for a while, smoking my pipe contentedly. My host asked a few questions about the neighboring villages, but lapsed into sullen taciturnity when he learned I was an outsider. As he brooded there silently, I could not help feeling a quality of strangeness in him, some subtle alienage that could hardly be analyzed. I was quite certain, for one thing, that he was tolerating me because of the storm rather than welcoming me with genuine hospitality. As for the storm, it seemed almost to have spent itself. Outside it was already growing lighter, for there was a full moon behind the clouds, and the rain had dwindled to a trivial drizzle. Perhaps, I thought, I could now resume my journey after all, an idea which I suggested to my host. Better wait till morning, he remarked. You say you're afoot, and it's a good three hours to Glendale. I've two bedrooms upstairs, and you're welcome to one of them if you care to stay. There was a sincerity in his invitation which dispelled any doubts I had held regarding his hospitality, and I now concluded that his silences must be the result of long isolation from his fellows in this wilderness. After sitting without a word through three fillings of my pipe, I finally began to yawn. It's been a rather strenuous day for me. I admitted, and I guess I'd better be making tracks for bed. I want to be up at sunrise, you know, and on my way. My host waved his arm toward the door, through which I could see the hall and the staircase. Take the lamp with you, he instructed. It's the only one I have, but I don't mind sitting in the dark, really. 
Half the time I don't light it at all when I'm alone. Oil is so hard to get out here, and I go to the village so seldom. Your room is the one on the right, at the head of the stairs. Taking the lamp and turning in the hall to say goodnight, I could see his eyes glowing almost phosphorescently in the darkened room I had left, and I was half reminded for a moment of the jungle, and the circles of eyes that sometimes glow just beyond the radius of the campfire. Then I started upstairs. As I reached the second floor, I could hear my host limping across the hall to the other room below, and perceived that he moved with owlish sureness despite the darkness. Truly, he had but little need of the lamp. The storm was over, and as I entered the room assigned me, I found it bright with the rays of a full moon that streamed on the bed from an uncurtained south window. Blowing out the lamp and leaving the house in darkness but for the moonbeams, I sniffed at the pungent odor that rose above the scent of the kerosene the quasi-animal odor I had noticed on first entering the place. I crossed to the window and threw it wide, breathing deep of the cool, fresh night air. When I started to undress, I paused almost instantly, recalling my money belt still in its place about my waist. Possibly, I reflected, it would be well not to be too hasty or unguarded, for I had read of men who seized just such an opportunity to rob and even to murder the stranger within their dwelling. So, arranging the bedclothes to look as if they covered a sleeping figure, I drew the room's only chair into the concealing shadows, filled and lighted my pipe again, and sat down to rest or watch, as the occasion might demand. 3. I could not have been sitting there long when my sensitive ears caught the sound of footsteps ascending the stairs. All the old lore of robber landlords rushed on me afresh, when another moment revealed that the steps were plain, loud, and careless, with no attempt at concealment. While my host's tread, as I had heard it from the head of the staircase, was a soft, limping stride. Shaking the ashes from my pipe, I slipped it in my pocket, then seizing and drawing my automatic, I rose from the chair, tiptoed across the room, and crouched tensely in a spot which the opening door would cover. The door opened, and into the shaft of moonlight stepped a man I had never seen before. Tall, broad-shouldered, and distinguished, his face half-hidden by a heavy square-cut beard, and his neck buried in a high black stock of a pattern long obsolete in America, he was indubitably a foreigner. How he could have entered the house without my knowledge was quite beyond me, nor could I believe for an instant that he had been concealed in either of the two rooms or the hall below me. As I gazed intently at him in the insidious moonbeams, it seemed to me that I could see directly through his sturdy form. But perhaps this was only an illusion that came from my shock of surprise. Noticing the disarray of the bed, but evidently missing the intended effect of occupancy, the stranger muttered something to himself in a foreign tongue and proceeded to disrobe. Flinging his clothes into the chair I had vacated, he crept into bed, pulled the covers over him, and in a moment or two was breathing with the regular respiration of a sound sleeper. My first thought was to seek out my host and demand an explanation. But a second later, I deemed it better to make sure that the whole incident was not a mere delusive after-effect of my wine-drugged sleep in the woods. I still felt weak and faint, and despite my recent supper was as hungry as if I had not eaten since that noonday lunch. I crossed to the bed, reached out, and grasped at the shoulder of the sleeping man. Then, barely checking a cry of mad fright and dizzy astonishment, I fell back with pounding pulse and dilated eyes, 
for my clutching fingers had passed directly through the sleeping form and seized only the sheet below. A complete analysis of my jarred and jumbled sensations would be futile. The man was intangible, yet I could still see him there, hear his regular breathing, and watch his figure as it half-turned beneath the clothes. And then, as I was quite certain of my own madness or hypnosis, I heard other footsteps on the stairs. Soft, padded, dog-like, limping footsteps pattering up, 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 and again that pungent animal smell, this time in redoubled volume. Dazed and dream-drowsed, I crept once more behind the protecting opened door, shaken to the marrow, but now resigned to any fate known or nameless. Then into that shaft of eerie moonlight stepped the gaunt form of a great gray wolf. Limped, I should have said, for one hind foot was held in the air as though wounded by some stray shot. The beast turned its head in my direction, and as it did so the pistol dropped from my twitching fingers and clattered unheeded to the floor. The ascending succession of horrors was fast paralyzing my will and consciousness, for the eyes that now glared toward me from that hellish head were the gray phosphorescent eyes of my host as they had peered at me through the darkness of the kitchen. I do not yet know whether it saw me. The eyes turned from my direction to the bed and gazed gluttonously on the spectral sleeping form there. Then the head tilted back and from that demon throat came the most shocking ululation I have ever heard. A thick, nauseous lupine howl that made my heart stand still. The form on the bed stirred, opened his eyes and shrank from what he saw. The animal crouched quivering, and then, as the ethereal figure uttered a shriek of mortal human anguish and terror that no ghost of legend could counterfeit, sprang straight for its victim's throat, its white, firm, even teeth flashing in the moonlight as they closed on the jugular vein of the screaming phantasm. The scream ended in a blood-choked gurgle, and the frightened human eyes turned glassy. That scream had roused me to action, and in a second I had retrieved my automatic and emptied its entire contents into the wolfish monstrosity before me. But I heard the unhindered thud of each bullet as it embedded itself in the opposite wall. My nerves gave way. Blind fear hurled me toward the door, and blind fear prompted the one backward glance in which I saw that the wolf had sunk its teeth into the body of its quarry. Then came that culminating sensory impression and the devastating thought to which it gave birth. This was the same body I had thrust my hand through a few moments before, and yet as I plunged down that black nightmare staircase, I could hear the crunching of bones. Four. How I found the trail to Glendale or how I managed to traverse it, I suppose I shall never know. I only know that the sunrise found me on the hill at the edge of the woods, with the steepled village outspread below me, and the blue thread of the Catequa sparkling in the distance. Hatless, coatless, ashen-faced, and as soaked with perspiration as if I had spent the night abroad in the storm, I hesitated to enter the village till I had recovered at least some outward semblance of composure. At last, I picked my way downhill and through the narrow streets with their flagstone sidewalks and colonial doorways till I reached the Lafayette house, whose proprietor eyed me askance. Where from so early, son? And why the wild look? I've just come through the woods from Mayfair. 
You came through the devil's woods last night and alone. The old man stared with a queer look of alternate horror and incredulity. Why not? I countered. I couldn't have made it in time through Potawisset, and I had to be here not later than this noon. And last night was full moon. My God! He eyed me curiously. See anything of Vasilya Krenikov or the Count? Say, do I look that simple? What are you trying to do, jolly me? But his tone was as grave as a priest's as he replied, You must be new to these parts, Sonny. If you weren't, you'd know all about Devil's Woods and the full moon and Vasily and the rest. I felt anything but flippant, yet knew I must not seem serious after my earlier remarks. Go on, I know you're dying to tell me. I'm like a donkey, all ears. Then he told the legend in his dry way, stripping it of vitality and convincingness through lack of coloring, detail, and atmosphere. But for me, it needed no vitality or convincingness that any poet could have given. Remember what I had witnessed, and remember that I had never heard of the tale until after I had had the experience and fled from the terror of those crunched phantom bones. There used to be quite a few Russians scattered betwixt here and Mayfair. They came after one of their nihilist troubles back in Russia. Vasily Okranikov was one of them. A tall, thin, handsome chap with shiny yellow hair and a wonderful manner. They said, though, that he was a servant of the devil, a werewolf and eater of men. He built him a house in the woods about a third of the way from here to Mayfair and lived all alone. Every once in a while, a traveler would come out of the woods with some pretty strange tale about being chased by a big wolf with shining human eyes, like Okranikov's. One night, somebody took a pot shot at the wolf, and the next time the Russian came into Glendale, he walked with a limp. That settled it. There wasn't any mere suspicion now, but hard facts. Then he sent to Mayfair for the Count, his name was Fyodor Chernevsky, and he had bought the old gambrel-roofed Fowler place up State Street to come out and see him. They all warned the Count, for he was a fine man and a splendid neighbor, but he said he could take care of himself all right. It was the night of the full moon. He was brave as they make him, and all he did was to tell some men he had around the place to follow him to Vasily's if he didn't show up in decent time. They did. And you tell me, Sonny, that you've been through those woods at night? Sure, I tell you. I tried to appear nonchalant. I'm no count, and here I am to tell the tale. But what did the men find at Okronikov's house? They found the Count's mangled body, Sonny, and a gaunt gray wolf hovering over it with blood-slavering jaws. You can guess who the wolf was. And folks do say that at every full moon... But, Sonny, you didn't see or hear anything? Not a thing, Pop. And say, uh, what became of the wolf, or Vasily Okronikov? Why, son, they killed it filled it full of lead and buried it in the house, and then burned the place down. You know, all this was sixty years ago, when I was a little shaver, but I remember it as if t'was yesterday. I turned away with a shrug of my shoulders. It was all so quaint and silly and artificial in the full light of day. But sometimes, 
when I am alone after dark in waste places, and hear the demon echoes of those screams and snarls, and that detestable crunching of bones, I shudder again at the memory of that eldritch night. For a story by Lovecraft himself, I chose The Tomb for its heavy Poe influence. One of his earliest pieces of fiction, Lovecraft said of this that it was heavily influenced by the style and structure of Poe's works. It makes a nice bookend to the month before we get to next week's Halloween celebration. So here is The Tomb by H.P. Lovecraft. In relating the circumstances which have led to my confinement within this refuge for the demented, I am aware that my present position will create a natural doubt of the authenticity of my narrative. It is an unfortunate fact that the bulk of humanity is too limited in its mental vision to weigh with patience and intelligence those isolated phenomena seen and felt only by a psychologically sensitive few which lie outside its common experience. Men of broader intellect know that there is no sharp distinction betwixt the real and the unreal, that all things appear as they do only by virtue of the delicate individual physical and mental media through which we are made conscious of them. But the prosaic materialism of the majority condemns as madness the flashes of supersight which penetrate the common veil of obvious empiricism. My name is Jervis Dudley, and from earliest childhood I have been a dreamer and a visionary. Wealthy beyond the necessity of a commercial life, and temperamentally unfitted for the formal studies and social recreations of my acquaintances, I have dwelt ever in realms apart from the visible world, spending my youth and adolescence in ancient and little-known books, and in roaming the fields and groves of the region near my ancestral home. I do not think that what I read in these books or saw in these fields and groves was exactly what other boys read and saw there. But of this I must say little, since detailed speech would but confirm those cruel slanders upon my intellect which I sometimes overhear from the whispers of the stealthy attendants around me. It is sufficient for me to relate events without analyzing causes. I have said that I dwelt apart from the visible world, but I have not said that I dwelt alone. This no human creature may do, for lacking the fellowship of the living, he inevitably draws upon the companionship of things that are not or are no longer living. Close by my home, there lies a singular wooded hollow, in whose twilight deeps I spent most of my time, reading, thinking, and dreaming. Down its moss-covered slopes my first steps of infancy were taken, and around its grotesquely gnarled oak trees my first fancies of boyhood were woven. Well did I come to know the presiding dryads of those trees, and often have I watched their wild dances in the struggling beams of a waning moon. But of these things I must not now speak. I will tell only of the lone tomb in the darkest of the hillside thickets, the deserted tomb of the hides, an old and exalted family whose last direct descendant had been laid within its black recesses many decades before my birth. The vault to which I refer is of ancient granite, weathered and discolored by the mists and dampness of generations. Excavated back into the hillside, the structure is visible only at the entrance. The door, a ponderous and forbidding slab of stone, hangs upon rusted iron hinges and is fastened ajar in a queerly sinister way by means of heavy iron chains and padlocks, according to a gruesome fashion of half a century ago. 
The abode of the race whose scions are here inurned had once crowned the declivity which holds the tomb, but had long since fallen victim to the flames which sprang up from a disastrous stroke of lightning. Of the midnight storm which destroyed this gloomy mansion, the older inhabitants of the region sometimes speak in hushed and uneasy voices, alluding to what they call divine wrath, in a manner that, in later years, vaguely increased the always strong fascination which I felt for the forest-darkened sepulchre. One man only had perished in the fire. When the last of the hides was buried in this place of shade and stillness, the sad urn full of ashes had come from a distant land to which the family had repaired when the mansion burned down. No one remains to lay flowers before the granite portal, and few care to brave the depressing shadows which seem to linger strangely about the water-worn stones. I shall never forget the afternoon when I first stumbled upon the half-hidden house of death. It was in midsummer when the alchemy of nature transmutes the sylvan landscape to one vivid and almost homogeneous mass of green, when the senses are well-nigh intoxicated with the surging seas of moist verdure and the subtly indefinable odors of the soil and the vegetation. In such surroundings, the mind loses its perspective. Time and space become trivial and unreal, and echoes of a forgotten prehistoric past beat insistently upon the enthralled consciousness. All day I had been wandering through the mystic groves of the hollow, thinking thoughts I need not discuss and conversing with things I need not name. In years a child of ten, I had seen and heard many wonders unknown to the throng and was oddly aged in certain respects. When, forcing my way between two savage clumps of briars, I suddenly encountered the entrance of the vault, I had no knowledge of what I had discovered. The dark blocks of granite, the doors so curiously ajar, and the funeral carvings above the arch aroused in me no associations of mournful or terrible character. Of graves and tombs I knew and imagined much, but had on account of my peculiar temperament been kept from all personal contact with churchyards and cemeteries. The strange stone house on the woodland slope was to me only a source of interest and speculation and its cold, damp interior, into which I vainly peered through the aperture so tantalizingly left, contained for me no hint of death or decay. But in that instant of curiosity was born the madly unreasoning desire which has brought me to this hell of confinement. Spurred on by a voice which must have come from the hideous soul of the forest, I resolved to enter the beckoning gloom in spite of the ponderous chains which barred my passage. In the waning light of day, I alternately rattled the rusty impediments with a view to throwing wide the stone door and essayed to squeeze my slight form through the space already provided. But neither plan met with success. At first curious, I was now frantic, and when in the thickening twilight I returned to my home, I had sworn to the hundred gods of the grove that at any cost I would some day force an entrance to the black, chilly depths that seemed calling out to me. The physician with the iron-gray beard who comes each day to my room once told a visitor that this decision marked the beginning of a pitiful monomania. But I will leave a final judgment to my listeners when they shall have learnt all. The months following my discovery were spent in futile attempts to force the complicated padlock of the slightly open vault, and in carefully guarded inquiries regarding the nature and history of the structure. 
With the traditionally receptive ears of the small boy, I learned much, though a habitual secretiveness caused me to tell no one of my information or my resolve. It is perhaps worth mentioning that I was not at all surprised or terrified on learning the nature of the vault. My rather original ideas regarding life and death had caused me to associate the cold clay with the breathing body in a vague fashion, and I felt that the great and sinister family of the burned-down mansion was in some way represented within the stone space I sought to explore. Mumbled tales of the weird rites and godless revels of bygone years in the ancient hall gave to me a new and potent interest in the tomb, before whose door I would sit for hours at a time each day. Once I thrust a candle within the nearly closed entrance, but could see nothing save a flight of damp stone steps leading downward. The odor of the place repelled yet bewitched me. I felt I had known it before, in a past remote beyond all recollection, beyond even my tenancy of the body I now possess. The year after I first beheld the tomb, I stumbled upon a worm-eaten translation of Plutarch's lives in the book-filled attic of my home. Reading the life of Theseus, I was much impressed by that passage telling of the great stone beneath which the boyish hero was to find his tokens of destiny whenever he should become old enough to lift its enormous weight. This legend had the effect of dispelling my keenest impatience to enter the vault, for it made me feel that the time was not yet ripe. Later, I told myself, I should grow to a strength and ingenuity which might enable me to unfasten the heavily chained door with ease. But until then, I would do better by conforming to what seemed the will of fate. Accordingly, my watches by the dank portal became less persistent, and much of my time was spent in other, though equally strange, pursuits. I would sometimes rise very quietly in the night, stealing out to walk in those churchyards and places of burial from which I had been kept by my parents. What I did there I may not say, for I am not now sure of the reality of certain things. But I know that on the day after such a nocturnal ramble, I would often astonish those about me with my knowledge of topics almost forgotten for many generations. It was after a night like this that I shocked the community with a queer conceit about the burial of the rich and celebrated Squire Brewster, a maker of local history who was interred in 1711, and whose slate headstone, bearing a graven skull and crossbones, was slowly crumbling to powder. In a moment of childish imagination, I vowed not only that the undertaker, Goodman Simpson, had stolen the silver-buckled shoes, silken hose, and satin smallclothes of the deceased before burial, but that the squire himself, not fully inanimate, had turned twice in his mound-covered coffin on the day after interment. But the idea of entering the tomb never left my thoughts being indeed stimulated by the unexpected genealogical discovery that my own maternal ancestry possessed at least a slight link with the supposedly extinct family of the Hydes. Last of my paternal race, I was likewise the last of this older and more mysterious line. I began to feel that the tomb was mine, and to look forward with hot eagerness to the time when I might pass within that stone door and down those slimy stone steps in the dark. I now formed the habit of listening very intently at the slightly open portal, choosing my favorite hours of midnight stillness for the odd vigil. By the time I came of age, I had made a small clearing in the thicket before the mold-stained facade of the hillside, 
allowing the surrounding vegetation to encircle and overhang the space like the walls and roof of a sylvan bower. This bower was my temple, the fastened door my shrine, and here I would lie outstretched on the mossy ground, thinking strange thoughts and dreaming strange dreams. The night of the first revelation was a sultry one. I must have fallen asleep from fatigue, for it was with a distinct sense of awakening that I heard the voices. Of those tones and accents I hesitate to speak, of their quality I will not speak, but I may say that they presented certain uncanny differences in vocabulary, pronunciation, and mode of utterance. Every shade of New England dialect, from the uncouth syllables of the Puritan colonists to the precise rhetoric of fifty years ago, seemed represented in that shadowy colloquy, though it was only later that I noticed the fact. At the time, indeed, my attention was distracted from this matter by another phenomenon, a phenomenon so fleeting that I could not take oath upon its reality. I barely fancied that as I awoke, a light had been hurriedly extinguished within the sunken sepulcher. I do not think I was either astounded or panic-stricken, but I know that I was greatly and permanently changed that night. Upon returning home, I went with much directness to a rotting chest in the attic, wherein I found the key, which next day unlocked with ease the barrier I had so long stormed in vain. It was in the soft glow of late afternoon that I first entered the vault on the abandoned slope. A spell was upon me, and my heart leapt with an exultation I can but ill describe as I closed the door behind me and descended the dripping steps by the light of my lone candle. I seemed to know the way, and though the candle sputtered with the stifling reek of the place, I felt singularly at home in the musty charnel-house air. Looking about me, I beheld many marble slabs bearing coffins, or the remains of coffins. Some of these were sealed and intact, but others had nearly vanished, leaving the silver handles and plates isolated amidst certain curious heaps of whitish dust. Upon one plate I read the name Sir Geoffrey Hyde, who had come from Sussex in 1640 and had died here a few years later. In a conspicuous alcove was one fairly well-preserved and untenanted casket, adorned with a single name which brought to me both a smile and a shudder. An odd impulse caused me to climb upon the broad slab, extinguish my candle, and lie down within the vacant box. In the gray light of dawn I staggered from the vault and locked the chain of the door behind me. I was no longer a young man, though but twenty-one winters had chilled my bodily frame. Early rising villagers who observed my homeward progress looked at me strangely and marveled at the signs of ribald revelry which they saw in one whose life was known to be sober and solitary. I did not appear before my parents till after a long and refreshing sleep. Henceforward I haunted the tomb each night, seeing, hearing, and doing things I must never reveal. My speech always susceptible to environmental influences, was the first thing to succumb to the change, and my suddenly acquired archaism of diction was soon remarked upon. Later a queer boldness and recklessness came into my demeanor, till I unconsciously grew to possess the bearing of a man of the world despite my lifelong seclusion. My formerly silent tongue waxed voluble with the easy grace of a Chesterfield or the godless cynicism of a Rochester. I displayed a peculiar erudition utterly unlike the fantastic, monkish lore over which I had poured in youth. 
and covered the flyleaves of my books with facile impromptu epigrams which brought up suggestions of Gay, Pryor, and the sprightliest of the Augustan wits and rhymesters. One morning at breakfast, I came close to disaster by declaiming in palpably licorice accents an effusion of 18th-century bacchanalian mirth, a bit of Georgian playfulness never recorded in a book, which ran something like this. Come hither, my lads, with your tankards of ale, and drink to the present before it shall fail. Pile each on your platter a mountain of beef, for tis eating and drinking that bring us relief. So fill up your glass, for life will soon pass. When you're dead, you'll ne'er drink to your king or your lass. And a Crean had a red nose, so they say. But what's a red nose if you're happy and gay? Gad split me, I'd rather be red whilst I'm here than white as a lily and dead half a year. So Betty, my miss, come give me a kiss. In hell, there's no innkeeper's daughter like this. Young Harry, propped up just as straight as he's able, will soon lose his wig and slip under the table. But fill up your goblets and pass them around, better under the table than under the ground. So revel and chaff as ye thirstily quaff, under six feet of dirt, tis less easy to laugh. The fiend strike me blue, I'm scarce able to walk, and damn me if I can stand upright or talk. Here, landlord, bid Betty to summon a chair. I'll try home for a while, for my wife is not there. So lend me a hand, I'm not able to stand, but I'm gay whilst I linger on top of the land. About this time I conceived my present fear of fire and thunderstorms. Previously indifferent to such things, I had now an unspeakable horror of them, and would retire to the innermost recesses of the house whenever the heavens threatened an electrical display. A favorite haunt of mine during the day was the ruined cellar of the mansion that had burned down, and in fancy I would picture the structure as it had been in its prime. On one occasion I startled a villager by leading him confidently to a shallow subcellar, of whose existence I seemed to know in spite of the fact that it had been unseen and forgotten for many generations. At last came that which I had long feared. My parents, alarmed at the altered manner and appearance of their only son, commenced to exert over my movements a kindly espionage which threatened to result in disaster. I had told no one of my visits to the tomb, having guarded my secret purpose with religious zeal since childhood. But now I was forced to exercise care in threading the mazes of the wooded hollow that I might throw off a possible pursuer. My key to the vault I kept suspended from a cord about my neck, its presence known only to me. I never carried out of the sepulchre any of the things I came upon whilst within its walls. One morning, as I emerged from the damp tomb and fastened the chain of the portal with none too steady hand, I beheld in an adjacent thicket the dreaded face of a watcher. Surely the end was near, for my bower was discovered and the objective of my nocturnal journeys revealed. The man did not accost me, so I hastened home in an effort to overhear what he might report to my careworn father. Were my sojourns beyond the chained door about to be proclaimed to the world? Imagine my delighted astonishment on hearing the spy inform my parents in a cautious whisper that I had spent the night in the bower outside the tomb, my sleep-filmed eyes fixed upon the crevice where the padlocked portal stood ajar. By what miracle had the watcher been thus deluded? I was now convinced that a supernatural agency protected me. 
Made bold by this heaven-sent circumstance, I began to resume perfect openness in going to the vault, confident that no one could witness my entrance. For a week I tasted to the full the joys of that charnel conviviality which I must not describe. When the thing happened, and I was borne away to this accursed abode of sorrow and monotony. I should not have ventured out that night, for the taint of thunder was in the clouds, and a hellish phosphorescence rose from the rank swamp at the bottom of the hollow. The call of the dead, too, was different. Instead of the hillside tomb, it was the charred cellar on the crest of the slope whose presiding demon beckoned to me with unseen fingers. As I emerged from an intervening grove upon the plain before the ruin, I beheld in the misty moonlight a thing I had always vaguely expected. The mansion, gone for a century, once more reared its stately height to the raptured vision, every window ablaze with the splendor of many candles. Up the long drive rolled the coaches of the Boston gentry, whilst on foot came a numerous assemblage of powdered exquisites from the neighboring mansions. With this throng I mingled, though I knew I belonged with the hosts rather than with the guests. Inside the hall were music, laughter, and wine on every hand. Several faces I recognized, though I should have known them better had they been shriveled or eaten away by death and decomposition. Amidst a wild and reckless throng, I was the wildest and most abandoned. Gay blasphemy poured in torrents from my lips, and in my shocking sallies I heeded no law of God, man, or nature. Suddenly a peal of thunder, resonant even above the din of the swinish revelry, claved the very roof and laid a hush of fear upon the boisterous company. Red tongues of flame and searing gusts of heat engulfed the house, and the roisterers, struck with terror at the descent of a calamity which seemed to transcend the bounds of unguided nature, fled shrieking into the night. I alone remained, riveted to my seat by a groveling fear which I had never felt before, and then a second horror took possession of my soul. Burnt alive to ashes, my body dispersed by the four winds, I might never lie in the tomb of the hides. Was not my coffin prepared for me? Had I not a right to rest till eternity amongst the descendants of Sir Geoffrey Hyde? Aye, I would claim my heritage of death, even though my soul goes seeking through the ages for another corporeal tenement to represent it on that vacant slab in the alcove of the vault. Jervis Hyde should never share the sad fate of Palinurus. As the phantom of the burning house faded, I found myself screaming and struggling madly in the arms of two men, one of whom was the spy who had followed me to the tomb. Rain was pouring down in torrents, and upon the southern horizon were flashes of the lightning that had so lately passed over our heads. My father, his face lined with sorrow, stood by as I shouted my demands to be laid within the tomb, frequently admonishing my captors to treat me as gently as they could. A blackened circle on the floor of the ruined cellar told of a violent stroke from the heavens, and from this spot a group of curious villagers with lanterns were prying a small box of antique workmanship which the thunderbolt had brought to light. Ceasing my futile and now objectless writhing, I watched the spectators as they viewed the treasure trove and was permitted to share in their discoveries. The box, whose fastenings were broken by the stroke which had unearthed it, contained many papers and objects of value, but I had eyes for one thing alone. 
It was the porcelain miniature of a young man in a smartly curled bagwig and bore the initials J.H. The face was such that as I gazed, I might well have been studying my mirror. On the following day, I was brought to this room with the barred windows, but I had been kept informed of certain things through an aged and simple-minded servitor for whom I bore a fondness in infancy and who, like me, loves the churchyard. What I have dared relate of my experiences within the vault has brought me only pitying smiles. My father, who visits me frequently, declares that at no time did I pass the chained portal, and swears that the rusted padlock had not been touched for fifty years when he examined it. He even says that all the village knew of my journeys to the tomb, and that I was often watched as I slept in the bower outside of the grim façade, my half-open eyes fixed on the crevice that leads to the interior. Against these assertions I have no tangible proof to offer since my key to the padlock was lost in the struggle on that night of horrors. The strange things of the past which I learnt during those nocturnal meetings with the dead he dismisses as the fruits of my lifelong and omnivorous browsing amongst the ancient volumes of the family library. Had it not been for my old servant Hiram, I should have by this time become quite convinced of my madness. But Hiram, loyal to the last, has held faith in me, and has done that which impels me to make public at least a part of my story. A week ago, he burst open the lock which chains the door of the tomb perpetually ajar, and it descended with a lantern into the murky depths. On a slab in an alcove, he found an old but empty coffin, whose tarnished plate bears the single word, Jervis. In that coffin, and in that vault, they have promised me I shall be buried. I am very excited for next week's supersized Halloween spectacular. It's the entire reason I chose to start this podcast in October. I saw Halloween coming up and couldn't resist doing quite possibly the most iconic Halloween story. Thank you for joining me for this week's issue of the Mayorzine. If you like the podcast, be sure to check out our Patreon if you'd like to support us. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find the Patreon at www.patreon.com slash mayorzine. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. This production is copyright 2021 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.